Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. When it comes to big or small projects around the home, Tony and Corey have got the know-how and the answers to make your life just a bit easier. Here they are, your Weekend Warriors, Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. I'm Corey Valdez. And I'm Tony Cookston. Thanks for tuning in with us today. We've got another great show lined up for you. We have a special guest in the studio with us. His name is Cole Peterson with BuildingAnAdu.com. Yeah. He is the national expert on building ADUs, which has taken over. Yeah. There are so many ADUs being built in the Portland area. It's crazy. I, I, I can't go a week without a set of plans for an ADU landing on my desk. Yeah. So Tony and I have talked about this before. We actually had a listener contact us and say, you know, you guys don't know enough about ADUs. You need to get Cole <laughs> Peterson on your show. So that's what we did. We reached out, and he's sitting in the studio with us. Cole, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're super excited to have you. Obviously, we get a lot of calls from listeners telling us that we don't know enough about what we're talking about and so most of the time so that that uh that begs us to reach out to an expert and get an expert in here to talk to us and so and adus as you well know because you've made a career out of it are um a very very popular thing everybody wants to have uh an adu on their property and we keep saying adu and we don't even really know what an adu is so let's take a minute cole if you could and tell us um what you do, right? I know that you have a long uh, laundry list of things that you do. Let's talk about the things that you do and, and a little bit about what really what an ADU is and why it's so popular. <clears throat> sure. So ADUs are secondary housing units on single family lots. And that definition is kind of simple sounding, but it's actually kind of complicated. It's not a duplex, not a triplex, not a fourplex. It's always a secondary dwelling unit. It's always diminutive, secondary, ancillary to the primary dwelling unit. You can't have a res you can't have an ADU on a commercial behind a commercial storefront. You can only have an ADU as a secondary structure behind a primary residence or in adjacent to adjacent to a primary residence. And it's a full housing unit, so it has its own sleeping space, sanitation space, cooking space, hangout space. And it's on, generally speaking, on residential lots. It's, it could be on a commercial lot if you had a residential dwelling on a commercially zoned lot. But generally speaking, residences are on residentially zoned lots. So that's kind of the definition of an ADU. Um, and what I do is, uh, you know, pretty much what I've been doing for the last eight years is assisting homeowners who want to build ADUs on their property by doing a variety of services and um, um, informational kind of events for homeowners who want to build an ADU on the property because it is an enormous undertaking to become a housing developer. If you have zero housing development experience, you have to all of a sudden learn about zoning and you have to learn about financing. You have to learn about legal issues of le legality issues. You have to learn about uh, property management. You have to learn about... Um, Hiring a general contractor, you have to learn about contract management. You have to learn about small, small space design. You have to learn about hiring an architect. You have to learn about all these different things that you've never dealt with before as a homeowner. And so my job is to help kind of expedite or facilitate homeowners becoming developers of their own property. Um, so and I do that through a book, a web websites, um, an ADU tour, 
classes, consultations, and a variety of other things. Oh, wow. is, oh is that all you do? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a lot. I, I see now. That yeah. is, it is a lot. I think uh, you, a conversation gets started about an in-law suite, right? It's a place where the mother-in-law can move in and be close by as she's getting on in years and um, or, or whatever, right? Or maybe even... Um, just the in-laws as a couple, maybe they just want to have them close that you can take care of. And I, and I think that it seems like something that's so simple. I've got a big spot on my property and I just want to build a thing there. Can I just do that? But clearly through that, uh, all of those things that you mentioned, it's a major undertaking. Uh, and I think we just kind of overlook a lot of the things that go along with the decision to build an ADU or a mother-in-law suite or a backyard cottage or any one of the other 64 names that yeah. <laughs> has got uh, an accessory dwelling unit. Yeah. That's yeah. Just it's a, that's a, a very, um, it's a mouthful. It is. It's a complicated word. When you say accessory dwelling unit, people go, what is that? Is yeah. that just an apartment? I mean, it sounds like it's just an apartment. <laughs> yeah. It's a bad, admittedly bad name. Um, and so, you know, we, in Portland now, most people, most homeowners anyway, if you say the word ADU, they know what it means. But um, yeah, like outside of Portland where ADUs are heavily concentrated. And by the way, you know, like so in Portland, there's 2,900 permitted ADUs. But you go next door to Beaverton and there's like 10. And oh, you go to wow. Lake Oswego and there's like five. So wow. there's very discrete in, in, in specific reasons why that's the case, and that relates to the regulations, which rela- relates to people's perceptions of these things. So, um, so there's, some, there's some really interesting politics at play, both locally and now at the state level, there is legislation that's coming forward in both Oregon and Washington to, Washington to aggressively promote uh, – or require jurisdictions to have better ADU regulations than they cer- than they currently do. Mm. Um, so I think what we're going to see is a lot more ADU activity in areas that have the right economic preconditions for ADUs to take off. That is to say, areas that are experiencing an affordable housing crisis, which is like the greater metropolitan area around Portland, Bend, Hood River, Eugene, Ashland. Um, maybe some coastal cities, and then up in Washington, we're talking the greater Seattle area. Um, <clears throat> maybe, maybe you could say like Olympia and some of uh, some of the other towns along the I five corridor. But areas where land isn't quite as exp- quite as expensive, we're probably never going to see ADUs take off there in any substantial way. Um, so, so ADUs have a role to play in certain cities, in depending on you know the economics of those cities, and depending on whether or not they're dominated by single-family residential zoning, which almost every jurisdiction is. Wow. Um, well, let's yeah. talk about that a little bit. What you kind of touched on it. What is the reason that ADUs have grown? Is it because housing in Portland is so expensive? Yeah. So imagine, <clears throat> so like they're really taking off in between the Willamette River and 82nd Avenue, and they're not taking off on the east side of 82nd Avenue, even though the regulations are the same. So why is that? Well, the regulations are just as good on the east east of 82nd, but if you wanted to buy, <clears throat> let's say you, you were like, I need a place for granny, and you're like, I can either buy this $300,000 house next door, or I can buy build an ADU, and that fixed cost for an ADU right now is quite high. We're talking like $200,000 for like a, an 800-square-foot ADU. Sure. So if that's the case... Is it a rational thing to build an ADU 
Or is it more rational to buy the adjacent property next door? Well, east of 82nd, you'd buy the property next door. But if you're in inner Portland where property values are like 600000 bucks at this point, it's more rational to build on that really oh. expensive piece of dirt. Wow. So you're only going to see ADUs built where land is extremely expensive. That makes sense. That is uh, that is a lot to take in. And, of course, we're talking about the the Portland metropolitan area right there, you know, downtown. And um, and that it's there's so many different situations as you get into the suburbs around uh, a big city like Portland or, uh, you know, talking to somebody in Medford or Eugene or, or something like that. And obviously there's rules all around. Um, and we need to cover all that stuff. We've got to take a quick break. Uh, don't go away. We're talking about ADUs. You're listening to Tony and Corey, your weekend warriors. We'll be right back. Being a homeowner in today's market isn't easy. With families hanging on to their homes longer, energy efficiency and long-term quality have become top priorities. Future generations will benefit from the choices you make today. Make the right choice. Invest in your family's future with Plygem Windows, available at area par lumber locations. You'll enjoy designer, low-maintenance windows at a price that won't jeopardize the kids' college fund. They're approved by the National Association of Home Builders and Energy Star certified. So why do people shop at PAR? Because we know that people who want to build need selection, competitive pricing, on-time delivery, and real experts who really know how to give expert advice. Just ask Shana. We help design projects all the time. Let's take a look at your plans. That's why people shop at PAR. If you've got a project you need help with, visit any one of our PAR locations across the Pacific Northwest. To find a location near you, visit PARR.com. For a look that reflects your style, choose Marvin Windows and Doors. They'll enhance the essence of a room and the character of a home. Beautifully crafted with the most extensive selection of customizable options, it's easy to complement your vision. Marvin Windows and Doors are sold only at independent dealers who understand your home is more than your address. It's a feeling you create in a place that holds your dreams. Marvin Windows and Doors built around you. Find exceptional service and inspiration at Par Design Center, your local Marvin dealer. Start your project with a trip to their Aloha location, where Par Design Center's experts can help you find easy and stylish replacement solutions for your next remodeling project. Family owned and operated since 1930. Go where the builders go. Par Design Center. Call Par Design Center at 503-614-2655 or visit online at par.com. That's P-A-R-R.com. Trex is the world's number one decking brand and the inventor of wood alternative composite decking. Trex is committed to helping you create a low maintenance backyard retreat that can handle the outdoors without depleting them and will do so for decades because your weekends should be spent relaxing on your deck, not repairing it. Choose from four distinct collections in 21 colors to meet any design aesthetic on any budget with the comfort of a 25-year fade and stain warranty. Trex, outdoor living elevated. Visit Trex.com for more. When you want to enhance your home's curb appeal with the look of real wood, choose real wood, like Shakertown Cedar Siding. The genuine natural color and grain of Shakertown products offers a great cedar siding solution for your project, adding dimension and drama to your home's exterior. 
Whether you select individual sidewall shakes, pre-manufactured Craftsman shingle panels, or pre-primed Cedar Cove shingle panels, your cedar siding will stand the test of time, outlasting building trends and its competition. Made with 100% clear vertical grain heartwood cedar, nothing compares to the rich appearance and outstanding performance of our cedar shingle panels. They resist the effects of the sun, rain, pests, and time. For 50 years, Shaker Town has been beautifying and protecting homes. A true American original. Visit shakertown.com to learn more. At PAR, we're more than just lumber because we know people want more than just lumber. That's why we sell grills, sealers, stains, wheelbarrows, rags, bags, extension cords, shop lights, saws, blades, ladders, and oh yeah, Yeti coolers and Yeti thermoses. Visit your local PAR Lumber and find any one of the many, many things that we sell every single day. show thanks for staying with us today on the show we're talking with cole peterson from building he is a expert yes. on adus it's all he does is he is ADUs. the authority in the portland metro the area. authority yes so uh cole we've got you in the studio we're talking about uh in the first half kind of what or the first segment we were talking about what an adu was and you know during the break we were kind of talking about where did they come from like how did this whole thing even start? I mean, I understand the economic thing, you know, houses are expensive, so people are thinking, well, I'll build an apartment on my property. I mean, is that kind of the thought process? Yeah, so step back 120 years, um, like early 1900s, ADUs, or what were effectively the same thing as ADUs, but they might have been called carriage houses or in-laws, like in-law suites or servants' quarters. Yeah, they, these, servants these quarters. have been around for like hundreds of years. In fact, I'd say something like you could say you could make an argument. ADUs have been around since the beginning of mankind. Really, I mean, it's not so. So it's really just this weird aberration from history that they started to be regulated out of existence between 1950 and. 2010. And and I say 2010 because in 2010, Portland, focusing in on Portland here, kind of liberalized the regulations, re, dropped some system development charge fees, and then we started to see a, res, a rapid resurgence. And, and Portland has really seen the most rapid kind of acceleration of ADUs anywhere in the United States. The, the city that, that we follow in the footsteps of is Vancouver, B.C. Vancouver, B.C. has more ADUs than anywhere else in the United States or anywhere else in North America. And now there's Austin, Texas, and, and Los Angeles, California. Those are kind of the four jurisdictions that have a, a statistically significant number of ADUs. That is to say more than like 1% market penetration. Mm. So, so ADUs have been around for a long time. They were called something else. And then, you know, they, they were kind of talked about a little bit in literature in the 70s and 80s. Um, but it wasn't really until the last, <clears throat> really the last five years that they've started to get real national attention because they're actually starting to take off in a, in a regulated, permitted environment. Whereas to the extent that 
ADUs have been taking off uh, prior to that in the 70s and 80s and 90s. They've all been unpermitted informal ADUs. And so those are everywhere. Those are everywhere. I'm talking like the, the stats on this show unbelievably that something like 10% of all of the housing units in the United States are informal ADUs, which sounds oh man incredible. Um, so so that is to say, you know, you got to wonder if there's so much concerted and, and um, uh, defined need for this housing type that people are willing to break the rules to build it, then what? why aren't they building them legally? Well, it's because the regulations for ADUs suck <laughs> everywhere in this country except for a few different places, right? So, so there's a lot of regulatory reform that needs to happen, like – where we are sitting right now, for example, they require owner occupancy, which means that if you wanted to build an ADU on your property, you would have to then commit in the deed to never leaving this property. You could never rent out this property again. If you wanted to build an ADU on this property, you would have to build an additional off-street parking spot in addition to um, building the structure that's taking up a lot of space. And you might just not have sufficient space. Whereas if you build a another structure such as a backyard studio or a backyard um, bedroom, which you can build, a legal detached bedroom. You don't have to build an additional off-street parking spot. There's no deed restrictions. So a lot of people would build a backyard detached studio or bedroom and then illicitly add the kitchen sink and stove after the fact (laughs) and then not have to deal with the (laughs) owner-occupancy requirement, not have to deal with the off-street parking requirement, and thus the karmic cycle of informal ADU development, you know, becomes more obvious. Why are we seeing so many informal ADUs? It's because the regulations suck. So yet there's this huge need for them. So people are building them anyway. And so now state legislators in California, Washington, Oregon are starting to be like, okay, we should not allow for local jurisdictions to be barriers to this form of housing that we feel is actually a good thing for the planet, for the economy, for Mm -hmm. the environment. Right. So it adds essentially you're increasing population density within areas that are inherently difficult to build on. Maybe they're the dirt is too expensive or there's just not dirt available. So single family residential zoning is a phenomena that was used to be a pretty small swath of the overall land coverage in cities. So Portland, for example, used to be something like 20% of the land was single-family residential and 33% was multifamily back in 1927. Fast forward to 2005 or 2015, and now we have the land coverage is 42% single-family residential and 10% multifamily. So we've locked that land into this inherently low-density form of development, which arguably has resulted in a, a... this housing crisis that we're dealing with now. That is to say, you can only fit so many houses if in that city if all that land is inherently zoned as single-family residential versus low density. And so in the center of a major metropolitan area, you don't want low density. You want high density in order to support the goods and services that are that a city needs in order to function. That is to say, transit. You can't operate transit systems unless there's sufficient density. You can't create good retail corridors unless there's sufficient density. So in jurisdictions that need to see more density in their downtown area, downtown residential neighborhoods, ADUs are one mechanism to achieve that outcome. So we're talking about uh, this huge percentage of unpermitted 
uh, ADUs that have been built because the because the regulations are hard to deal with. So what is somebody, a homeowner, facing if they have gone out and built this thing and they didn't get it permitted? And uh, whether it's right or not, even if it was built to perfection, it's back there and it's not permitted. And then they decide that it's time to put their house up for sale and, um, and they're going to move on. Um, so the, the buyer comes in or, or whoever it is that's dealing with that. Have you seen this happen? And does it put the homeowner in a tight spot if they've got this, this ADU that's not permitted and uh, they're trying to sell their house? Is that something, is there somebody going to step in and say, Hey, hold on a second. You can't just sell this when this thing on here is nobody knows whether it's up to code or what's going on there. Well, it's a, it's a, that's a great question. It's a long answer, but the, the short of it is depending on what aspects of the structure were built with permits, it may not be a problem or it might be a problem. For example, if the actual structure wasn't allowed to be there, then yeah, it's a big problem. You might need to actually tear the thing down. Ugh. But if the structure was permitted as, say, a garage or a studio or a backyard, whatever, then and all you're doing is tricking out the interior, then all you have to do is de-trick out the interior and depending on what portions of the interior you got permits for, you can probably leave some of that intact. Um, the things that put it over the the threshold of being an ADU are the kitchen sink and stove. So if you eliminate the kitchen sink and stove from the equation, oftentimes it might become permissible. Uh -huh. But it, it really it's a case-by-case -case basis, unfortunately. So it's, that's a generic kind of answer to oh, a yeah. complicated, nuanced, specific, granular question. Yeah, obviously there's a lot of things that play into that. I mean, you've got egress and windows and tempering and glass and – and um, walkway space and, you know, all of those things that play into that. And any of those things could be things that make it not permittable. Um, but uh, they definitely are playing with fire a little bit when you have uh, a piece of property that's valued at whatever it is, $250,000 or $300,000, and now suddenly you're stuck there and or have to make changes to something that's already great in order to just turn it into something that's sellable. So it makes sense that if you're going to do something like that, that you want to do it right the first time uh, so that it doesn't end up just costing you more money to fix it. Um, Unless the regulations are basically forcing you to do it illicitly. Right, exactly. Well, it, it, that's kind of where you're starting off with the problems. If you're building something illicitly, like a lot of people do, you know, we always advocate for people to get their you know, proper permits, get those inspections, so you're you're above water. You're always doing it right. Yeah. We've got so much more to talk about. we got to take a quick break. When we come back, more about ADUs. You're sending to Tony and Corey, your weekend warriors. Don't go away. Show built by Par Lumber. Now, here's Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome back to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show. Thanks for staying with us. Today in the show, we're talking about ADUs, which are accessory dwelling units. We've got Cole Peterson with buildingandadu.com. Uh, he's a professional uh, ADU specialist, and uh, he's answering all of our questions. There's a lot more than I thought in this process. Oh, it's way a lot. more, way yeah. more than I thought. Yeah, we thought we could just say, "Hey, we want to build an apartment on our property." It's, I mean, you know, you get a lot. 
uh, especially with, um, now I'm not even gonna say that you get a lot of people who are just thinking, Hey, it's my property. It's my property. If I want to build that, I should be able to build it. Or if I want to hire somebody to build it, I should be able to build it. But the fact is it isn't that simple. Um, and you mentioned actually Cole, uh, in one of the previous segments, you said that there are a lot of single family properties out there that probably wouldn't even qualify to build an ADU uh, and have it permitted and done like it was supposed to be done. Let's talk about s- some of those. Yes, at some of those. I actually have a question. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> it's okay. I didn't. Need, I didn't want you to stop talking. But um, I have a question about ADUs in general. I mean, an ADU has to be detached. I mean, what about somebody that wants to convert an old basement? I mean, is, could that be rolled into the ADU? Guidelines? Yeah, absolutely. So the definition that I gave was secondary housing unit on a single family lot. It didn't mention anything about the structural form, right? So the structural form, it provided it as um, diminutive to the primary dwelling. If the primary dwelling is 1,000 square feet and the ADU is 900 square feet, that is smaller than the primary dwelling. So in Portland, all different structural forms are allowed in, in most jurisdictions around Oregon and probably about half or more in Washington. Um, any structural form is permissible. That is to say, you can do detached new construction, you can do basement conversion ADUs, garage conversion ADUs, ADUs above a garage, attic conversion ADUs, bump out ADUs. Those are all acceptable, viable, totally um, doable forms of ADUs. What we see in the in the ones, you know, like in Portland, we have we have actually really good data about ADUs that are being developed. <clears throat> what we know is that 50 to 60% of ADUs are detached new construction, 25% are garage conversions or ADUs above a garage, and then 25% are basement conversion ADUs. A smaller subset, say 5%, are like bump-out ADUs or internal carve-out ADUs that are not basements. Um, And to the question about, you know, can I build one on my property? Really, the place to start there is Google your city name, ADU regulations, you know, so Trout... Uh, Troutdale, Port, uh, ADU regulations, and see what it says. Um, many jurisdictions will say ostensibly that they allow ADUs, and I would say, as an advocate, as an expert, their ADU regulations suck. So you don't really want <laughs> you don't really want to be able to ADU there because it's going to undermine your property value if you're putting a deed restriction that says you have to live on that property for the rest of your life. If you if you move away, you have to sell. You know that's a bummer. So I you know in when I say you can't build an ADU there. What I mean to say is I wouldn't recommend people to build an ADU there, and most rational people have opted not to build an ADU there because of those regulations. People that are in a different need, though, right? Some A lot of people are probably thinking, I'm going to build this as income property. But some of the people are probably building them for their mother-in-law or their disabled child or something. You know what I mean? If you have a family member that you're taking care of, but you want them in a separate uh, building, some people are just going to do it. Right. I mean, I, I need. I have a need for this. I'm going to build it. You know, Tony and I do the show called Cost Versus Value every year, and there's all these projects in there that you rate that are rated nationally by the National Home Builders Association on your value at what it costs to do it. You know, some of the things in there, you know, like swimming pools, you know, rate really, really low. But if you want it, you're going to build it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that you can't. It's just you wouldn't recommend it. Right. Well, and and I say, uh, you know, like so, we'll take all these jurisdictions in the greater metropolitan area around Portland, twenty-eight jurisdictions. Literally, there's there isn't one jurisdiction with even more than twenty ADUs, whereas Portland is twenty-nine hundred. So it's the, the regulations are so bad that so few people want to do it. 
right? Because if you start down that pathway, you'll quickly realize, oh my God, no way, no thank you. I will do it informally. Thank you very much. Yeah. I will I will do I will trick out my basement. I will make it as effectively a separate dwelling. By the way, you can have a separate entrance. You can have a separate bathroom in your basement. You can have egress windows. You can have legal bedrooms. But God forbid you call it an ADU and all of a sudden you have a deed restriction on your property that says you must live on that property for the rest of time, which undermines the economic value of your property. Which, so, so yeah, there's situations, of course, where you might be building it for a family member. So the two main motivations of why people build ADUs are passive rental income potential and multi-generational household flexibility. Those those represent 95% of why people build ADUs. And it's usually a, a combination of those two over the course of time. People initially want to build it for rental income, and then they're like, maybe I'll want to move away from Portland one day and come back. And so I want to have a place where I can do that. Or maybe I want to build <clears throat> a place that's accessible so that I can have a place where I can actually get inside of it when I'm in a wheelchair in 20 years. And so they're thinking ahead. Those are the kinds of multi-generational motivations that people have. Sure. Yeah. I actually uh, shipped an ADU. I sold the lumber for an ADU where the people that they owned this big, beautiful Victorian home in Portland in Southeast and they built an ADU, gorgeous ADU. And they moved into the ADU and rented their house out for <laughs> yeah. way, way more money than they could have rented the ADU out. Cause they didn't want it. They didn't Talk about the, downsizing. <laughs> they didn't that's need a, the big house. That's a super efficient way to downsize. I, I would know. say. Yeah, that's what I did. I I did that for seven years, and so the rental income on the primary house covered the mortgage, and then a thousand bucks a month. So I made, you know, unlike everybody else, I wasn't paying mortgage, mortgage, I wasn't paying rent, I was making money off of my housing accommodation. So that I mean, that's a really compelling use case for ADUs if you're in a one or two person household, which by the way is two thirds of all the households in the United States. Wow. So we have all these twenty five hundred square foot homes, the three bedroom, four bedroom homes, which are vastly oversized for the average demographic, which is one or two point six people per household. So the two thousand four McMansion, you mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean McMansion. I mean, so so the the average home according to the tenth census is two thousand five hundred feet. And, 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 and that doesn't at all comport with the demographic demand that's out there. So ADUs are creating a right-sized form of housing to meet that demographic demand in an economically viable way. In other words, it wouldn't make sense to buy an empty lot and then put an, a 600-square-foot house on it because the fixed cost of development is so high that that 600-square-foot house would cost almost as much as a 2,400-square-foot house. On the other hand, there's no need for a 2,400 square foot house for two thirds of the population. Right. So the only way to economically kind of create that form of dwelling within a residential zone is via an ADU. What are your thoughts on how <clears throat> real estate in general is priced by the square footage? <laughs> so I mean, so you so with with ADUs anyway, that you're looking at it on a per square foot development cost basis is is a very bad way to look at it because it's so expensive per right, square foot. Right. Yeah. So I mean the bigger you go, the cheaper it is and per square foot. So ADUs, you know, even though they're small dwellings, are very, very, very expensive to build. And so that is kind of the the number one message that I am oftentimes hammering into homeowners who are going to start down this process. And so that quickly ties into how in the world am I going to pay for this thing that's going to cost two hundred thousand dollars. And then furthermore, to make it even more complicated, there's no good financing options for you. So you have to somehow come up with $200,000. And by the way, people who are building ADUs aren't wealthy because you wouldn't build an ADU if for the people who are building ADUs are doing so for economic reasons. Right. Right. They're not super loaded. They're middle income people. So 
if you there isn't good financing options, how in the world do you get two hundred thousand dollars to do it? So that is part of what I you know teach homeowners is how to go about that mentality of entering the process like a developer would have to. I'm very curious about that. I kind of want to know, you know, we're running out of time this segment, but I want to know where does somebody start? You know, the average homeowner, if you're sitting on a piece of property where it makes sense that you want to do some sort of income property, you know, how do you know? You said you Google it. Okay. You find out, yes, I can build it. Then what? Yeah, obviously, uh, just like we talk about any project that somebody's planning, it all starts with a budget, right? And a plan. And so you have to get to a plan and you got to find out whether or not you can afford it and what it's going to cost. And when we come back from this break, I want to talk to you a little bit about if you can help people with the plan based on the size of their thing. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Tony and Corey, your weekend warriors. We'll be right back. Don't go away. There's a reason Fortress Railing Products is one of the strongest brands in the railing industry. From commercial, code-tested products to diverse residential styles, Fortress Railing Products is a category creator with a complete line of railing solutions to turn your outdoor space into a living place. Fortress is committed to a higher standard for quality, strength, innovation, versatility, and ease of installation, which means you get a beautiful railing system that stands up to your busy life. Whether you're looking for iron, aluminum, or cable rail, we have the right solution for your outdoor living space. And installation is as easy as one, two, three. One, choose your pre-welded, pre-assembled panel. Two, choose your post and bracket. And three, select your personalization options. Fortress, products that inspire, designs that liberate. For a look that reflects your style, choose Marvin Windows and Doors. They'll enhance the essence of a room and the character of a home. Beautifully crafted with the most extensive selection of customizable options, it's easy to complement your vision. Marvin Windows and Doors are sold only at independent dealers who understand your home is more than your address. It's a feeling you create in a place that holds your dreams. Marvin Windows and Doors, built around you. Find exceptional service and inspiration at Par Design Center, your local Marvin dealer. Start your project with a trip to their Aloha location, where Par Design Center's experts can help you find easy and stylish replacement solutions for your next remodeling project. Family owned and operated since 1930. Go where the builders go. Par Design Center. Call Par Design Center at 503-614-2655 or visit online at par.com. That's P-A-R-R.com. Preparing your home for winter weather is an easy task for weekend warriors when you have the right tools. Small leaks in doors, windows, and siding can create big problems down the road. So make inspection of these areas a part of your annual home maintenance plan. Caulking that is cracked, peeling or pulling away from your trim can be cut and replaced with OSI Quad Advanced Formula Window, Door and Siding Sealant. Designed for superior performance on exterior window, door, siding and trim applications, OSI Quad can be applied to wet or dry surfaces and even at freezing temperatures. Unlike other sealants, Quad resists dirt and dust collection, yellowing and water washout. Quad is self-tooling, available in a variety of colors, and once cured, is paintable. To learn more about OSI Quad, visit OSIPro.com. 
Whether you're building a new home, remodeling an old home, or re-envisioning your backyard space, if you've got a project, go to Par Lumber for decks, fencing, kitchens, windows, doors, and more. Par Lumber, your neighborhood building and home improvement experts. For true rain screen protection under your exterior siding, not much compares to the unique three-dimensional matrix of Home Slicker. Home Slicker provides a continuous space for drainage and drying, a thermal break, and pressure equalization, eliminating the threat of trapped moisture. Home Slicker is easy to install, ventilates the entire wall surface, can be used behind stone, stucco, and lap siding, saves time and labor costs, and even offers a 50-year warranty. To learn more about Home Slicker, visit BenjaminObdyke.com. At PAR, we're more than just lumber, because we know people want more than just lumber. That's why we sell grills, sealers, stains, wheelbarrows, rags, bags, extension cords, shop lights, saws, blades, ladders, and oh yeah, Yeti coolers and Yeti thermoses. Visit your local PAR lumber and find any one of the many, many things that we sell every single day. Listening to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. Now, here's Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome back to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show. Thanks for staying with us. If you haven't already, go check out our social media online. We're at uh, WW Home Show at on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we're also on YouTube. If you're interested in watching that, you can go to uh, YouTube and search The Weekend Warriors. Or if all of that's too difficult, go to par.com. That's P-A-R-R.com. Click on The Weekend Warriors link and uh, you can follow all of that stuff. Yeah. So go check that out. So today in the studio, we've got Cole Peterson, who is an uh, expert on ADUs, which are accessory dwelling units. And uh, we've been talking a lot about... Uh, kind of some of the history behind them, but let's say somebody wants to do one. Where do they start? Yeah, so so I would start by just, you know, looking at the regulations and seeing whether the regulations are palatable. Google the name of your town, then ADU regulations, and hopefully you'll find ADU regulations. And let's assume for the sake of this conversation that they look good to you and you want to proceed. So then you know, I, I kind of flip things on their head a little bit. And knowing what I know about the costs of development, um, I I usually tell people the very first step is to um, figure out whether you have sufficient finance and sufficient money to build these things. And then the question is, well, how much do these things cost? Well, that's a broad question. It can cost $5,000 or it can cost $200,000. Where on the spectrum is it going to cost? Well, it all depends on the structural form of an ADU that you're going to build and what you have to work with. So if, for example, you're taking a finished basement and all you want to do is create a second kitchen in it and effectively create an ADU, that could be like a $10,000 job. But in most cases, we're talking about taking an unfinished basement, for example, and finishing it out to an ADU. Um, and, and then that's going to cost closer, you know, eighty dollars to $120,000. Detached new construction for a 400-square-foot ADU in the Portland market, it's going to be about $120,000 as the floor for the cheapest 400-square-foot ADU you could possibly build. And then for an 800-square-foot ADU, the floor right now with design, build, permitting, and sweat equity you know, included in that value 
um, is about $180,000. So depending on what type of AD you're going to build, you need to know how much it's going to cost roughly, and then you can back your way into understanding how you're going to pay for this thing. That's, yeah. Okay. That's quite a bit more than I think people are expecting. Yeah. When you think a small building, you know, it can't be much more than a shed, right? <laughs> but developmental costs, you know, you're talking about uh, yeah, I mean, parking the, requirements. Are there parking requirements in most jurisdictions that allow them? Yeah, so most jurisdictions require that you build an additional off-street parking spot. So that means you have to extend your driveway, which is like, you know, $5,000 if you have to extend your driveway. If you, if you have to build a covered parking spot, that can be like 30000 bucks, right? So Bend, Oregon requires additional off-street covered parking spots. And a lot of jurisdictions have off-street parking requirements. So, and then there's so, – so this is not akin to building a shed at all. It, think of it more like this. Um, think of it as building a house and then you shave off a little bit of that money. Like you shave <laughs> off – I mean that's what it is. It's building a house. Um, so so I, think, I think it's uh, – you have to reframe what you're – because you're building a kitchen. Kitchen's going to cost 20 grand yeah. minimum. Yeah. Bathroom, 10 grand minimum. Foundation, 15 grand minimum. Utility connection, fee, you know, electrical utility connection service upgrade, 4,000 bucks. Yeah. Designer, you know, professional designers right now are charging eight to $10,000. So all, you add all these fixed costs up that, that don't even look at the structure that you're building. Right. And all of a sudden you're already at like 80,000 bucks. Yeah. You know, so, you know, but, but of course, if you're doing a conversion of a pre-existing permitted structure, such as a garage or such as a basement, you can reduce those costs significantly. And if, and if there's been permitted finish work done within those spaces, then you can reduce the cost further still. So, so, so we, we talked about a first step regulation, second step, you know, what kind of cost are we talking about and how are you going to finance it? When you've gotten, once you've gotten through that step, then you can get into, um, the conventional method would be find a designer, get us a design, shop it around for a GC. And I say, don't do that either. Flip that on its head, find a builder first. So that, that, that's, you know, in this market these days, and I think this is probably true in every market where ADUs are going to be popular, there's a labor shortage. There's not enough general contractors. There's too much work. There's too much, there's too much commercial residential rehab work going on. And so finding a builder is tough. And if you're going to get a builder, a lot of them are going to be six months out before they can start a big job, like an ADU. A lot of by the way, the, the general people who do ADUs are GCs that do like one to three per year. It's not big shops, right? It's more right. small shops that are GCs that are kind of project managing and project managing and hiring day, you know, laborers to do various facets of the work. So to find those kind of guys, they don't have the capacity to handle twenty ADUs a year. They can do three a year. So they're six months out before they can start. So you want to find a builder because they're the ones who are actually going to give you an accurate bid on a on, or give you an accurate scope of what a project like this might cost. And then you can start to thinking about you can start reverse engineering a design based on your budget, based on that relationship you have and what that builder advises you can actually get done within that budget. Yeah. I think the interesting thing that I took away from that, I mean it was a lot, but uh the interesting thing is that there is a bare minimum starting cost. Um, I mean, you you referenced $80,000, but there's a bare minimum starting cost. doesn't matter how big it is. If you're going to pour a foundation, if you're going to put a kitchen in, a bathroom, a bedroom, uh, you know, if you're going to side the building and you're going to roof the building, I mean, all of these things, there's a base amount of money, no matter how big it is, no matter how small it is. And then you can start to add, like people will say, 
oh, $100 a square foot is a pretty good number. Yeah, after your base amount of money that you're going to spend to do the thing, and then you want to make it bigger, you know, then okay, add $100 a square foot to get out to that thing. But that $100 a square foot simply does not cost, I mean, does not consider that yeah. first block of money that you're going to have to spend to take on the project. And I think that that's some place, so that's something a lot of times people just don't consider. Yeah, so another another way to think about this is imagine you're running a paint crew. You have a one square foot block, one square foot surface that you need to paint. Is that paint crew going to charge, you know, 20 bucks to come to your site, do the site prep, select the paint from the paint store, do all, do the paint job, <laughs> yeah. and then go home? No, they're not going to charge 20 bucks. Uh -uh. They're going to charge just a, if it was 100 square feet versus a square foot, are they going to charge a lot less for one square foot? No, it's still the same level of work, basically, right? right? So every facet of the construction process is like that. There's a fixed cost for each of these subcontractors just to get to the site, just to get you the big, just to get you the materials to go to par lumber, buy the wood. I don't care whether it's 10 sticks or one stick, it's still going to take the same amount of time for them. Right. So each of these phases of construction, there's a fixed cost to development. And so that's why building small is ironically, you know, or surprisingly much more expensive per square foot. So I say don't even look at the per square foot cost because it's going to, it doesn't really. It's it mis. It's misleading in right. terms of in terms of the cost of construction for this size structure. Absolutely. Yeah. Would you say that the average person could take on this project themselves and GC it themselves? No. Would you even recommend it? No. Not at all. No. I mean, it's I agree a. With you. It's a. I do too. I agree with you completely. It is a major, major undertaking. I mean, obviously, you list it off. 25 things right off the top of your head that somebody would have to know in order to effectively manage a project like that. Yeah. I've seen, I've, I've seen, I've been in more ADUs than anybody else period. I've seen two people of GC their entire ADU from scratch who are average, you know, homeowners. Um, it took them two years to do it. They're, you know, I've seen three of these. So from start to scratch for new construction. Now to get more nuanced, a lot of homeowners are able to general contract conversions of pre-existing structures, and I recommend homeowners consider that if they're very, you know, bootstrappy, fiscal, prudent, <laughs> you know, want to save a lot of money, and they're like ambitious and they're smart. Patient. Yeah. I would add patient to <laughs> patient. this list. I'm going to yeah. add one more thing because I looked at your website and yeah. I saw that you said I had a portion to do with this one job. I'm going to get too deep into it, but you were like. I needed to be able to commit 30 hours a week, Yeah, 30 hours a week. Now that's 30 experienced hours a week. Right. So if you're somebody that's not done it before, I mean, you know, maybe that's a full-time job. It's a full-time uh, job. During that process. So yeah, even just general contracting, not lifting a finger would be a full-time job. <laughs> yeah, right. So, right, right. I mean, I GC'd this... my kitchen remodel yeah. that I did myself three years ago and it took eight months <laughs> for a kitchen remodel. Wow, you know, I did crazy. a lot of sweat equity. Tony did a lot of sweat equity. But I, I mean, I hired my own uh, contractors for the things that I didn't want to tackle. It took me eight months. Yeah. I couldn't imagine building, I mean, essentially a home. You're building a home. It is building a house. So uh, what, a, what I will advise for homeowners who are super ambitious is just like you could potentially general contract a conversion of a pre-existing structure. So you're not dealing with the foundation and the framing. It's possible to uh, take on the finish phases of construction as a general as a homeowner contractor oh yeah we need to definitely talk some more about that dig in a little bit more uh there we got to take a quick break we'll be right back
Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. When it comes to big or small projects around the home, Tony and Corey have got the know-how and the answers to make your life just a bit easier. Now, here's Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome back to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. Thanks for staying with us. If you haven't already, go check us out on our Instagram and Facebook. Go to par.com, click on the Weekend Warriors link, and uh, follow us there. Uh, we're also recording the show right now for our video podcast. It's going to be up on YouTube. So uh, make sure you go check that out. <laughs> Subscribe. If, uh, if you ever have any questions, you can email Tony and I at the weekend. No, it's weekendwarriors.par. Yep. Weekendwarriors. At par.com. At par.com. <laughs> not weekend, the. Weekend, just, not the. Yeah, weekendwarriors at par.com. So feel free to email us your questions or comments. We love to hear from you. Uh, if you have any questions for Cole, feel free to email us and we can pass those along. Or you can go to his website at buildingandadu.com. There's probably an opportunity to leave some comments there or or at least get your contact information, right? Yeah, and so if you go to that website, there's a, you can sign up for an email that I send out, which um, has a whole bunch of free resources. Um, it's also a place where I advertise a book that is the most authoritative book on this topic, as well as a web course. So if you're if you're a homeowner and you're considering building an ADU, I'd recommend checking out those resources. I'm doing um, ongoing free webinars to talk about the different products that I have for homeowners. So sign up for that email list if you're interested in learning more. You had mentioned earlier a seminar or class that you you're getting ready to do. We should probably throw that out there. What's the date of that? So, yeah, so I teach these ongoing classes on a regular basis for homeowners. I've been teaching that for eight years, taught over 2,000 people. I teach an ongoing class for realtors through Earth Advantage, which is a local green building organization. I've taught that to over 1,000 realtors, and that's every month as well. But the event that I alluded to is called Accessory Dwelling Academy. It's the first time we will have run this. It's going to be on June 21st, and it's really intended not for homeowners, but for professional um, builders, designers, realtors, lenders, and appraisers who want to kind of up their game in the ADU market. They want to learn a lot more about ADUs and how to kind of uh, uh, kind of accelerate their 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 business with with the within the ADU realm of uh, things that can be done. Because ADUs are very much an up and coming thing in a lot of markets due to very significant regulatory changes that are happening, actually legislative changes that are happening at the, both the Oregon and Washington state level. And that is going to dramatically change the ADU market um, dynamics throughout these states. So if you're a builder listening, you're going to probably get a lot more questions or project bids about ADUs. Yeah, and, it, and, and you get uh, their CCB credits. Um, it also comes with an, an ADU specialist designation if you pass an exam after the, um, after the uh, uh, day-long course. Pass the exam, then you get this designation, which sets you apart as, from all the other general contractors out there because it shows that you have taken the time to learn a whole lot about a whole bunch of aspects of ADU development. Yeah, that awesome. sounds awesome. That, that is awesome. And I know uh, Corey and I work for Par Lumber Company, of course, and uh, we get a lot of questions about this topic. It's a very popular topic. Um, and like you said, the regulations tend to be kind of restrictive. And I think as you're reading through the regulations as somebody who's interested in it, um, you know, you kind of get lost in them a little bit. And uh, if you could uh, 
you know, if, if somebody just needed to get some advice about how to maybe um, read through those and understand them better, or maybe there are, I don't want to say loopholes, but, you know, alternative routes that get them to the same result. Um, I feel like you, you'd certainly be the person to talk to about that, uh, or a class that you're giving might give those exact answers. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, and I'm not afraid to talk about loopholes. In fact, I'm a big fan of loopholes. And (laughs) so I I have a whole chapter on loopholes in my book. So read the book, um, because even if your jurisdiction has terrible ADU regulations and it says, if you build an ADU, it has to be attached. Well, guess what? Breezeways classify as attaching structures oftentimes so you can create a breezeway between two detached structures and all of a sudden you have a quote-unquote attached, attached ADU. Structure. All right. That's a nice. great, I call it the breezeway loophole. Yeah, uh, it's like reaching oh. out and touching. That's like a, that's like a loophole. now. That's like a loophole the size of a hula hoop. That's like <laughs> a hula hoop hole. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. And so um, I'm 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 all about it, man. You know, take advantage of the loopholes. If the city's going to make it challenging for you, you know, take advantage of of the loopholes that they've left out there and exploit those loopholes to accomplish your goals. Well, it's yeah. government, right? Yeah. Government. They just make things harder for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. In the building industry, I mean, I certainly for <laughs> certainly sometimes it feels like that for sure. Yeah. Um, so this is super exciting. We, we did, as we were talking during the last segment, we were wrapping up the last segment. We were talking about homeowners GCing their own projects. And so there's a lot of varying degrees of that, right? If you said, I'm handling this whole thing myself and you're calling individual subs and you're bringing them in and you're scheduling the whole thing, there's probably some portions of that that somebody could do without I don't know, having to take on the whole thing. Um, but would you say that there are varying degrees that uh, a homeowner could take part and save themselves some money without just saying, I'm simply doing this whole thing by myself? Yeah. And so, like I said before, it's very, very rare that it makes sense for a homeowner to actually serve as their own general contractor. It, it only makes sense, I'd say, if they're probably more or less professional builders and they don't have a full-time job and they're super passionate about this project. So that's not really going to apply to most people. What does, what can make sense is for a super ambitious homeowner to hire a general contractor to do the weather tight shell. That is to say everything from foundation through oftentimes all the way through drywall. And then the homeowner can take over as general contractor to do, to sub out say the painting and the, the cabinetry and, maybe hire a plumber to do the finish plumbing fixtures and the finish an electrician to do the finish light fixtures and maybe some of the flooring. Those are the kinds of things that homeowners can oftentimes and will oftentimes take on. And that does save, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Um but, you know, even that is an extremely ambitious amount of work for a lot of homeowners. So it's not an ill-advised thing at all, literally just to hire a general contractor to do from start to finish for you. In fact, you might be better off in terms of the actual cost savings um, in the end because you might very well screw things up if you don't know exactly what you're doing um, so so in general I'm like for the you know without knowing an individual I'd say it makes sense to hire a general contractor to do the whole thing but in a case-by-case basis it can certainly make sense for homeowners to put in a good degree of sweat equity and in fact a lot of homeowners do put in the average statistical average is homeowners put in 10 weeks of sweat equity into an AD, which is a lot of sweat equity mm, yeah that's a lot of sweat. That's a lot of sweat. Gross. Okay, of sweat. so somebody has decided that they can afford it. They can. They've decided that r- the regulations allow it. They've decided that they can get the money. They've sourced it, and now um, 
they've contacted a builder, right? Um, and they're gonna go. They're gonna get to a GC at some point. But they've got a builder, so they're really moving forward. How do they choose a plan? How do they decide um, what the plan looks like or what they can fit in there? Uh, what's the smallest size they want to have feasibly? How many square feet does one person require? There's a lot of questions there, but yeah. I really want to talk a little bit about, you know, what what is the bare minimum size of an ADU that's really going to work in your experience, and um, and and where are they going to find the inspiration and the motivation that they need to find the right plan that's going to fit them? We're going to talk about that as soon as we come back. Take a quick break. You listen to Tony and Corey, your weekend warriors. We'll be right back. Being a homeowner in today's market isn't easy. With families hanging on to their homes longer, energy efficiency and long-term quality have become top priorities. Future generations will benefit from the choices you make today. Make the right choice. Invest in your family's future with Plygem Windows, available at Area Par Lumber locations. You'll enjoy designer, low-maintenance windows at a price that won't jeopardize the kids' college fund. They're approved by the National Association of Home Builders and Energy Star Certified. So why do people shop at PAR? Because we know that people who want to build need selection, competitive pricing, on-time delivery, and real experts who really know how to give expert advice. Just ask Shana. We help design projects all the time. Let's take a look at your plans. That's why people shop at PAR. If you've got a project you need help with, visit any one of our PAR locations across the Pacific Northwest. To find a location near you, visit PARR.com. For a look that reflects your style, choose Marvin Windows and Doors. They'll enhance the essence of a room and the character of a home. Beautifully crafted with the most extensive selection of customizable options, it's easy to complement your vision. Marvin Windows and Doors are sold only at independent dealers who understand your home is more than your address. It's a feeling you create in a place that holds your dreams. Marvin Windows and Doors built around you. Find exceptional service and inspiration at PAR Design Center, your local Marvin dealer. Start your project with a trip to their Aloha location, where PAR Design Center's experts can help you find easy and stylish replacement solutions for your next remodeling project. Family owned and operated since 1930. Go where the builders go. PAR Design Center. Call PAR Design Center at 503-614-2655 or visit online at par.com. That's P-A-R-R.com. Trex is the world's number one decking brand and the inventor of wood alternative composite decking. Trex is committed to helping you create a low maintenance backyard retreat that can handle the outdoors without depleting them and will do so for decades because your weekends should be spent relaxing on your deck, not repairing it. Choose from four distinct collections in 21 colors to meet any design aesthetic on any budget with the comfort of a 25 year fade and stain warranty. Trex, outdoor living elevated. Visit Trex.com for more. When you want to enhance your home's curb appeal with the look of real wood, choose real wood, like Shakertown Cedar Siding. The genuine natural color and grain of Shakertown products offers a great cedar siding solution for your project, adding dimension and drama to your home's exterior. 
Whether you select individual sidewall shakes, pre-manufactured Craftsman shingle panels, or pre-primed Cedar Cove shingle panels, your cedar siding will stand the test of time, outlasting building trends and its competition. Made with 100% clear vertical grain heartwood cedar, nothing compares to the rich appearance and outstanding performance of our cedar shingle panels. They resist the effects of the sun, rain, pests, and time. For 50 years, Shaker Town has been beautifying and protecting homes. A true American original. Visit shakertown.com to learn more. At PAR, we're more than just lumber. Because we know people want more than just lumber. That's why we sell grills, sealers, stains, wheelbarrows, rags, bags, extension cords, shop lights, saws, blades, ladders, and oh yeah, Yeti coolers and Yeti thermoses. Visit your local PAR Lumber and find any one of the many, many things that we sell every single day. Show built by Par Lumber. Now, here's Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome back to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show. Thanks for staying with us. Today we're talking about ADUs. We've got Cole Peterson with buildingandadu.com. He is the foremost authority on building them. He knows everything there is to know about it. Uh, he's written some books, he does some seminars. Uh, if you're very, if you're interested, if you're thinking about uh, learning more about ADUs, go to that website, buildingandadu.com. And uh, before the break, we were talking about the next step. You know, the first step is you really you choose your, you find out if a if you can even do it. B, you kind of secure your funding to see what you could even afford. You talk to a builder to see what that is, and then you said something about reverse engineering, talking about working with an architect. You know, do you have any tips on finding an architect or, you know, like different construction? You had mentioned construction methods, you know, and, I, and being in the lumber industry, I mean, I know a lot of different construction methods. I mean, are you referring to like concrete or wood or sips or, you know, those sorts of things? Not so much. It's more thinking about the, so <clears throat> let's say you had a pre-existing, let's say you had a budget of 60, 80,000 bucks, right? Mm -hmm. And you had a garage, Oh, I see what you're saying. Or you could, but you were like interested in doing new construction. I would, as a consult, you know, for a consultation, I would come in and say, if you only have eighty thousand dollars, don't even consider new construction. You can't do it. So, go, go with a garage conversion, and that might be not palatable to you. In which case, I would say, just don't do an AD. You're not financially in a position to do that. But before, you know, there are a number of ways to get access. There are ways to get access to sufficient financial resources. Um, I don't have time to go into all of it, but I I teach a lot about that in the book and and through my courses. So so don't don't think that you are capped at what you think you are capped at until you read my book and and learn you know what the suite of potential financing options are. Um, so so that's what I meant by you know the the construction methods. Uh, gotcha, and, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, I mean when you're working with an architect, and it's the same thing when you're building a home. You're going to sit down with that architect and he's going to talk about different things or different architects will talk about different things. You know, there's, you know, stick framing, there's advanced stick framing, there's, you know, SIPS panels, structurally insulated, there's, you know, uh, 
CMU. I mean, there's concrete walls tilt up. There's so many different construction methods, and all of them come at different costs. And really, it kind of depends on what you're trying to achieve. You know, Tony and I have talked on this show about uh, net zero. Yeah. If you're trying to build a home that is net zero, you could also build a very energy efficient ADU. You could build one that operates at almost net zero or um, what's the other one, Tony, from Europe? Passive. Passive house. Passive. Thank you. Passive house. Uh, These are the things that you probably should be thinking about up front. You know, there is some... Sometimes there's a lot of cost in some of those aspects, but sometimes there's not. Just building a very energy efficient building uh, with, you know, solar panel ready might be on that list, in my opinion. Yeah, the energy performance score standard is a standard that's put out there by the Energy Trust of Oregon, and it's also offered in Washington. And that that standard looks at energy efficiency and, um, <clears throat> you know, it looks at uh, air quality. And th- that's the standard that I recommend above all the others in terms of building to a standard that that looks at how to reduce your overall energy uh, use uh, by putting in better insulation, air, air sealing, high-performance uh, heating system, high-performance water heater. Um, I'm not, you know, passive house is a really cool concept, but when you're talking about such a small structure, you don't really need – most of our energy use really comes from heating and cooling. And so – when you're talking about a really small cubic volume of air, which ADUs are inherently very small cubic volumes of air, energy efficiency is almost less relevant. So going for that kind of passive house standard, A, is much harder to achieve for a small structure, but B, it's less relevant because return on investment is like hundreds of years out instead of like sure. 20 years out. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But you know, building something that's uh, super energy efficient is probably quite a bit easier to do. On such a small structure, I mean, you could you could probably get away with a very small HVAC unit or you know some sort of um, heated floor system. You know what I mean? There's yeah. Most people are going for ductless mini split in our climate these days because it's like it's three four thousand bucks something like that for one head unit, and it gives you both heating and cooling. Unfortunately, we now need AC in our region because we're experiencing climate change. Whereas we didn't need it like five years ago, but that's rapidly changing, and I'm seeing that evolve in the marketplace. And so now, 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 more and more people are going with ductless mini split because it provides heating and cooling, and it's very efficient too. So that's that's definitely taking over seventy five percent of the ADU market. Yeah, that makes sense. That's yeah. really the perfect scenario for a ductless mini split. So I'm thinking about um, I'm thinking about what the design, what the interior is going to look like, and and you know I'm I'm kind of imagining. And I think a lot of people do this. Imagine a tiny house. I see a lot of tiny house plans. <laughs> it sounds funny. Plans What's for the difference. Plans for building a tiny house, right? Um, and, and it's. I feel like it's very similar. These things sort of cross in the in what they try to accomplish. Um, but but those tiny houses, you know, can be two uh, stories tall, or sometimes even more than that if they're creative. Is there a height restriction for a a detached um, secondary unit on your single uh, property. Your yeah, s- yeah, it's on your on your residential property. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, so there's there's um, usually the regulations for ADUs, what I call development regulations, define how high it can be, and a good standard, a standard that you would want to see, is a height limit of twenty feet or so for the midpoint of the gable, or twenty five feet for the peak of the gable. 
Um, otherwise, you would be forced into doing a one-story structure if it's less than that. And that one-story structure is problematic for a variety of reasons. Um, then there's regulations that define how big these things can be. In Oregon, the standard, what you see in most jurisdictions is an 800-square-foot limit, and that would be true of the whole metropolitan area around Portland. Um, and then there's regulations that define where on the property it can be located relative to the rear and side yard setbacks, how far it has to be from the front property line, how far it has to be from the primary residential structure or how close it must be to the primary mm -hmm. residential structure. And then there's oftentimes codes that say the ADU can be 800 square feet or X percent the size of the primary house. And if it said something like 25% or 30% or even 50% the size of the primary house, that might kill the project right there. If you have a 1,000-square-foot house and you really need to build an ADU for two people, then a 500-square-foot ADU is just not big enough. Um, mm. What I put out there is a general stick-your-finger-in-the-wind rule of thumb is 400 square, for, 400 square feet per capita is, a, is an aggressive downsizing but doable way to think about space. So w one, one person can live in 400 square feet. Two people can live in 800. I wouldn't go too much less than that. Yeah, that was good. That's one of my questions. I mean, you know, you, you have to get some idea of what size of a space you're going to need to be comfortable. And if you think about all the things that have to go in there, I mean, if you just start like this, Corey, um, you said the smallest room, Cole, I think was about 8 by 10 or 80 square feet or somewhere around that, right? So that's that's your smallest room. I mean, you've got to have a bathroom. You're going to want a kitchen. And you certainly want to have a one separate room that you can sleep and change and do those things. So at the very least, you've got three rooms, right? And if they have minimum sizes, then you're already tied to that square footage. And then you have to have a common room. And so you start thinking about those things. And if you have a two-story or if you can build a two-story and still have a 25-foot peak or less, then uh, it certainly opens up your opportunity. But I feel like you kind of have like this weird little ladder thing or kind of some short stairs with a with a uh, peaked uh, roof or vaulted ceiling or something in the second story. So there's some weird little nuances that go with that, but it's exciting to talk about those things. I feel like uh, it's even with all of the talk about the restrictions sucking, you know, um, it's I'm still very excited to uh, be a part of that that process. I think I would enjoy it. Speaking of tiny houses, um, I, th I think it's worth touching on some of the differences between tiny houses on wheels and ADUs because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on and a lot of confusion about that. There's a lot of people building tiny houses right now. I mean, I feel like they're all over the place, even to the point of, you know, even to the point of not necessarily being on wheels. We got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about that. You're listening to Tony and Corey and Cole Peterson. Don't go away. Listening to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. Now, here's Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome back to the Weekend Warriors. Thanks for staying with us. Today in the show, we're talking about ADUs. We've got a, a professional ADU specialist in the studio with us, Cole Peterson, with BuildingAnADU.com. Uh, before the break, you were talking about, you were alluding to the differences between tiny homes and ADUs. What is the difference? I mean, I would almost think they're the same. Yeah, so some people might 
use that term tiny homes when they're talking about ADUs, but I deliberately don't use the word tiny home or tiny house at all. I always use tiny home, tiny homes on wheels or tiny house on wheels versus an ADU. And they're very, those two things are both smaller than the average American dwelling and tiny houses on wheels are typically up to 200 square feet, whereas ADUs are like oftentimes up to 800 square feet. So they're both smaller than the average American dwelling, but that's where the connection between the two of them ends. They have nothing else in common. Tiny house on wheels, generally speaking, aren't legal to live in anywhere in the United States in residential zones. They're not built to any code. They're not easily easily financed. They're not easily insurable. Therefore, you can't legally rent them out um, in general. Now, <clears throat> so so and 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 so going back to the comment about the sleeping loft, like a tiny house is constrained to being 13 and a half feet high. Why is that? Well, they have to be roadworthy, and so they have to go underneath uh, power lines and, and whatnot, whereas ADUs don't have to worry about that, right? So so in a tiny home, you're oftentimes going to see an, a sleeping loft, and a sleeping loft is going to have, because you can't fit a legal-to-code stair in that structure, it's going to have a ladder, and a ladder doesn't meet any code. So therefore, you're going to have an Un, you know, unpermittable sleeping loft with an unpermittable stair leading to it. And so the next question for a lot of people is, can I just take the wheels off the tiny house and turn it into an ADU? And the answer is no, because you can never get that lofted space to meet any kind of form, formal building code for being a formal bedroom. And that's just one of like 10 things that you can't legally accomplish in terms of converting that to an ADU. So, so that's kind of the difference. Now, tiny houses on wheels are getting a lot, have gotten a lot of attention in the media. There's but like 20 shows on TV about it. Oh, there's yeah. so many shows, but none of them happen to mention that it's not legal to live in them. So there's <laughs> all these people who think that they want to live in a tiny house, but, um, but you know, there's basically no way to legally do that. Now, the thing that's fascinating, and I don't mean to confuse matters, is that now... For the first time ever, certain jurisdictions, including Portland, well, actually, really all of Oregon, are now subject to um, this Oregon Reach Code standard, which was put out by the state of Oregon, which says that tiny homes on wheels are a legal residential dwelling type. Um, but there's still a lot of question marks about how that's going to play out and whether or not local jurisdictions have to create a zoning pathway for those tiny homes and wheels to be placed somewhere. So yeah, fine, you can have a tiny house and wheels as a dwelling, but if there's no place to put it other than an RV park, because it's the only place they can legally be placed and slept in, then they're kind of a useless form in terms of a formal approved housing typology. So you almost need like a... Uh... Like a, a travel trailer park or, you know, or like an <laughs> yeah. RV park or, you know, yeah. um, kind of the old trailer park idea where you have essentially big, gigantic, tiny homes on wheels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's, that's, right. that's another thing. thing that's not new, it's right? another so not new thing. Yeah. Doing that for a long time. Uh, honestly, when I bought the property that I built my last house on, Corey, you probably remember this. When I bought the property, it had a mobile home on it. Um, the difference between a mobile home and a manufactured home is the mobile home was literally on a trailer with wheels under it. My manufactured home or my mobile home that was on my property when I bought it and it was old and needed to be torn down had taillights. <laughs> it really did. And, uh, so we, we of course tore that down before we built our house on there, but, uh, yeah, tiny homes, not really something new, um, but different, certainly different and has taken on all new regulations and that kind of thing. And, I mean, technically, kind of 
uh, kind of under the radar. They right? are definitely e- under the radar. Even though they're super popular and everybody's talking about it, yeah. they're not addressing it. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because what is the purpose? Why would somebody build a tiny home if they can't live in it? Is it like a little vacation thing? Because uh, people don't either know about the regulations or they're they're saying, screw you, planning department, um, because the planning department isn't pro- allowing them to live in the type of dwelling that they want to live in. So just to be clear, there are, you know, there are standards for mobile homes or what are now called manufactured homes. That name changed in like 19, the 80s. Um, and then there are standards for RVs. And tiny houses on wheels, there haven't historically been any standards. So they are totally under the radar. And it's almost a form of civil disobedience for people to build them and live in them. And But, you know, plenty of people are doing it. It's not like a huge phenomenon, but it's definitely out there. And uh, I don't have a problem with it, honestly. I think it's a good thing. Um, but uh, but it's not permissible. It's not allowed. Well, there's a lot of questions there. Electricity, sewer, water. Mm-hmm. Where do you do the, What do you do with those things? I mean, you can't really <laughs> connect to the city sewer. I mean, or, or, people or where do that. Are they, where are they not legally? Are, so they're putting them on their property and connecting connecting to city illicitly sewer. to the sewer system. Or they most. What's more common than that is using um, composting toilets. Oh, and then yeah. some incinerating, incinerating toilets, and then people always do kind of just run a hose connection from their hose bib, and then they usually just run an extension cord, and then they have a propane heater or a wood burning stove. Now, Caravan, our tiny house hotel, I own the tiny house hotel, first legal place you could stay in a tiny house on wheels anywhere in the U.S. Those are legally connected to the sewer system, so they have normal flush toilets, normal showers with heaters, electric 50 amp connections. So. So we have infrastructure that's more akin to what you would be familiar or accustomed to seeing in a standard residential house. But most high wheels, as a virtue of the fact that they are not legally allowed to be there, are doing um, composting toilets. Interesting. Yeah, we actually have talked about that in we the have. past as well, um, which is a very interesting thing in and of itself. Um, so what is the name of your place where you said you – tell me about that. Tell me about your tiny home connection. Yes, yeah, so I own the Tiny House Hotel. It's in Northeast Portland on Alberta Street, and it's um, six tiny homes on wheels. Um, it was the first place where people could legally stay in a tiny house on wheels anywhere in the U.S., first place with legal connections to the sewer system and water system anywhere in the U.S., largest collection of tiny houses on wheels at the time. We opened our doors in 2013, and it's a, it's a hotel. Basically, that so, is so you, awesome. We also do tiny house tours there on sun, selected Sundays, so you can go to tinyhousehotel.com if you want to learn about the tours and sign up and see a bunch of tiny houses on wheels that are custom built, you know, one of a kind, unique tiny homes on wheels. And I, you know, I'm a fan of tiny homes on wheels, but because they are not legal to live in, generally speaking, I've invested more of my energy in ADUs because they draw kind of similar interests and passions among people, but the ADU offers a legal pathway to accomplish the same task or the same goal, which is to create um, economic freedom and sustainability through housing. Oh, yeah. And honestly, because of the, the ability to build it bigger and do more, uh, it's really um, – it's still smaller than the standard American dwelling but allows you to do so much more. And you can do a lot. I mean, in 800 square feet, you can do a lot, I feel like. There's people living in studios downtown Portland right now paying an exorbitant amount of money to stay there. And it's just smaller than that. And it's just one room. Uh, and that's uh, frankly, that's crazy <laughs> to me. But but I guess, you know, some people prefer 
to live that way. Yeah, and you know, so in some ways, ADUs are creating a an apartment, but uh, in terms of the the gen- the type of people that live in ADUs or would want to rent an ADU, except that unlike an apartment, it's going to be in a residential property with a backyard, and so some people who um, might not want to live in a place where they can't get direct access to the outside might want to live in a residential zone. And that's kind of like the ultimate thing that 80s are providing. They're providing a rental stock that can be in a residential zone for this one, two-person household size of which, you know, two-thirds of our households are are one, two-person households. So um, we've got to take a break here in just a second, but one of the questions that I want to get an answer to when we come back is if you build a detached ADU on your property, uh, does it have a separate address from your house? And how does some of the separation work there from the primary dwelling to the ancillary dwelling? We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, answers to that, you'll listen to Tony and Corey, your weekend warriors. There's a reason Fortress Railing Products is one of the strongest brands in the railing industry. From commercial, code-tested products to diverse residential styles, Fortress Railing Products is a category creator with a complete line of railing solutions to turn your outdoor space into a living place. Fortress is committed to a higher standard for quality, strength, innovation, versatility, and ease of installation, which means you get a beautiful railing system that stands up to your busy life. Whether you're looking for iron, aluminum, or cable rail, we have the right solution for your outdoor living space. And installation is as easy as one, two, three. One, choose your pre-welded, pre-assembled panel. Two, choose your post and bracket. And three, select your personalization options. Fortress, products that inspire, Designs that liberate. For a look that reflects your style, choose Marvin Windows and Doors. They'll enhance the essence of a room and the character of a home. Beautifully crafted with the most extensive selection of customizable options, it's easy to complement your vision. Marvin Windows and Doors are sold only at independent dealers who understand your home is more than your address. It's a feeling you create in a place that holds your dreams. Marvin Windows and Doors, built around you. Find exceptional service and inspiration at Par Design Center, your local Marvin dealer. Start your project with a trip to their Aloha location, where Par Design Center's experts can help you find easy and stylish replacement solutions for your next remodeling project. Family owned and operated since 1930. Go where the builders go, Par Design Center. Call Par Design Center at 503-614-2655 or visit online at par.com. That's P-A-R-R.com. Preparing your home for winter weather is an easy task for weekend warriors when you have the right tools. Small leaks in doors, windows, and siding can create big problems down the road. So make inspection of these areas a part of your annual home maintenance plan. Caulking that is cracked, peeling or pulling away from your trim can be cut and replaced with OSI Quad Advanced Formula Window, Door and Siding Sealant. Designed for superior performance on exterior window, door, siding and trim applications, OSI Quad can be applied to wet or dry surfaces and even at freezing temperatures. Unlike other sealants, Quad resists dirt and dust collection, yellowing and water washout. Quad is self-tooling, 
available in a variety of colors, and once cured, is paintable. To learn more about OSI Quad, visit osipro.com. Whether you're building a new home, remodeling an old home, or re-envisioning your backyard space, if you've got a project, go to Par Lumber for decks, fencing, kitchens, windows, doors, and more. Par Lumber, your neighborhood building and home improvement experts. For true rain screen protection under your exterior siding, not much compares to the unique three-dimensional matrix of Home Slicker. Home Slicker provides a continuous space for drainage and drying, a thermal break, and pressure equalization, eliminating the threat of trapped moisture. Home Slicker is easy to install, ventilates the entire wall surface, can be used behind stone, stucco, and lap siding, saves time and labor costs, and even offers a 50-year warranty. To learn more about Home Slicker, visit BenjaminObdike.com. At PAR, we're more than just lumber, because we know people want more than just lumber. That's why we sell grills, sealers, stains, wheelbarrows, rags, bags, extension cords, shop lights, saws, blades, ladders, and oh yeah, Yeti coolers and Yeti thermoses. Visit your local PAR Lumber and find any one of the many, many things that we sell every single day. show everybody thanks for staying with us your weekend warriors talking about adu properties mm -hmm. well adus on your property <laughs> right before the break tony had mentioned you had asked questions about the utilities and you have you could shed some light on this because if you build something on your property do you just connect the water and sewer to your house or i mean how does that work yeah so so what you want, what you want the code to allow is for you to just extend the utilities to your ADU from your primary dwelling. And usually the code does allow that. So with a sewer, it means that you have to find the sewer stack if you have a basement and it has to be, you know, say a cup, say we're talking about a detached ADU that's 20 feet from your primary residence and you need to have a quarter inch drop for every foot of run for that sewer. You need to have, you need to tap into your sewer in your primary house about say like a foot below grade or so, and then it's got a slope, or sorry, about two feet below grade in order for it to have sufficient uh, slope to get out to that ADU. And so somewhere beneath your primary dwelling, you're gonna tap into your sewer. And that, that, that sewer connection could actually happen outside the envelope, outside the foundation of, of, the, of the primary dwelling, or it could happen inside the house. In which case, you'd bore a hole through the foundation wall and, and connect into that sewer. Water is just extended from the primary house through, usually there's water lines running through the ceiling joists of the basement, and then you poke a hole through the foundation wall and run that out through a trench up into your ADU. Electric, you um, usually have a single meter head for your primary dwelling, and sometimes, depending on what the electrician and the utility company says, you will put in a secondary meter head, you'll upsize that electrical service to get more than 200 amps, usually like 325. And 325 will be enough to serve both units. And then you will run, you'll have two meters and one, one meter service will be for unit A and one unit service will be for unit B. So you'll have two separate electrical meters. And then gas, if you want to run gas at all, um, you would have two meter heads uh, for, you would have the 
utility company Northwest Natural in the Portland's case uh, would come out and add a secondary meter head for that secondary service, and then there would be two bills for that. So that's that's how the four utilities typically work. Um, and it, depending on the jurisdiction, those costs could be pretty significant. Upsizing the water line service to have sufficient water pressure for an additional, you know, bathroom plus kitchen can cost up to ten thousand dollars in some cases. So oh this, man! So this can be an issue, a municipal issue, because they have to come out. The city has to come out and actually rip up the road in order to change out the water line, the lateral that goes from the water main to the the water meter. Mm-hmm. So that's expensive work for them. So they have to charge for that. And so that's part of the cost of doing business. The electrical utility, as I mentioned, oftentimes it will cost $4,000. So that's like a fixed cost of you know $14,000 just for those two upgrades. The plumbing, sewer, I mean, you don't have to tap into the sewer main, thank goodness, because that can cost 15, 20,000 bucks. You just have to extend it from your primary dwelling, and that's just a matter of getting a plumber out there to do that work once you've done the trenching. And then hope the people in your ADU aren't flushing weird things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Loading your sewer with wet wipes. It's the worst ever. Oh, or G.I. Joe action figures. Uh, yeah, a little... Uh, Put a note on there. No G.I. Joes. No G.I. Joes can go in this toilet, uh, just so you know. So what about this? Your home has an address, and it sits on this piece of property, and that's all mapped out, and, and everybody knows. And now suddenly you put a second dwelling on the same piece of property. Is it going to get a different address, or is it going to be a sub-address of your address? Like maybe in, if my address is 320, is this going to be 320A or something like that? Yeah, so why do we have addresses? Well, we have addresses in part so that emergency responders can get to our homes in the case of a fire. And so... Uh, it is required, at least in Portland, I suspect in most jurisdictions, that when you have a new housing unit, you must have a street address visible from the street in order for emergency responders to get to that unit in the case of a fire. And so the the code bottom line says, thou shalt have a visible street address for unit B visible from the street. And so the final certificate of occupancy require, inspection requires that. And, and yes, it's usually just the letter B appended to mm-hmm. the primary street address, unless you have a detached ADU on a corner lot, in which case it could be actually um, a, a whole separate street address that's for a different street altogether. But that's pretty rare. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I know uh, on my I'm on a corner lot, my primary residence on a corner lot, and uh, we I actually have an approach through the sidewalk um, on on both off of two different streets. Uh, so huh. there would be an opportunity for me to have a driveway, an approach on a driveway that goes into the back portion of my property there. On your uh, junior acre? On my, yeah, or whatever. It's a made-up made up unit of measure. I don't know if you do that. <laughs> Never heard that one. Yeah, Corey hadn't either. <laughs> there is such a thing called a junior ADU in California. We don't have those up here. Oh, it's a... They're like carved-out ADUs. They basically just require that you put in a, a firewall between two portions of space, and you can add a little kitchen up, but you don't have to separate the utilities. It's a phenomena that's like is just in California. It's not really anywhere else. In the Maybe US. if you have a really big house, you could carve out a yeah. small portion of it, but it has to have you have to have a firewall. Yeah, just you know, two layers of five eighths inch drywall is, is a one hour firewall, and that's like the standard. You know, which, which you have to put in when you're creating a new housing unit adjacent to an existing housing unit. Let's talk about that a little bit because fire code. I, I see a lot of it in the construction industry. You know what I do. I actually go over a lot of those fire assemblies. Um, are you required? Does 
you know, if, if, if anything's parked next to your home, you I mean, you have to think about that, right? Yeah. So the fire code says that if you have two adjacent structures, they are, if they're, if, if any two points on either the vertical or horizontal plane are within six linear feet, then you must fire rate those structures or those por- portions of those structures. But so I usually recommend to keep things simple, keep six feet of separation between the eaves of the structures and you should be good to go. But if you, you, you can actually get closer than that, but then you just have to fire rate those, those eaves and those walls. And that can add a little bit of cost, but it's not, not a killer. It's just something yeah. to, you have to account for. And then you can get those structures down to being three feet of separation. Um, and then when you're talking about attached ADUs, i.e., you know, a basement ADU, let's say, then then you have to do a you have to put that fire rated uh, wall in the ceiling assembly between the two, and usually that's two layers of drywall, um, but it can be accomplished in a number of different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, the last question, you know, we're running out of time, but I want to know about or what you know about rentability. I mean, or Airbnb, you know, if somebody was thinking about doing this, can they just throw it on Airbnb and have all that as legal? Is yeah. a legal rental? Yeah. So, so, so let's be clear. Airbnb is a one form of a short-term rental. Short-term rental is a, re- a space that's rented out for less than 30 days um, at a time. And otherwise it's a long-term rental by most conventional municipal standards. So um, yes, you can rent out the ADU long-term, no problem. Every jurisdiction allows for that. Some jurisdictions have owner-occupancy requirements, so you can't rent out both units. But in all jurisdictions that I know of, you can rent out one or the other. Um, but then short-term rental regulations are 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 an up-and-coming kind of phenomena that certain jurisdictions, like Portland, are now regulating. And they're saying, you know, you can rent up to two bedrooms on your property. And Portland is silent on whether those two bedrooms are housed within the ADU or the primary dwelling. But there are portions of the regulations that say if you have a short-term rental, you have to live on that property X number of months a year. I think it's like nine months a year. And you have to get, get those bedrooms inspected to ensure that they're legal, legally built. They have egress windows and uh, smoke detectors. Um, now, what Portland has done is uh, they've waived system development charges for ADUs to incentivize them, but they've said, if you're going to use it for a short-term rental, we are not going to waive this system development charge. So you're going to have to pay an extra fifteen to $19,000 in order to uh, build that ADU um, because an, a short-term rental unit is not accomplishing the goals of Portland's interest in building ADUs, which is to create more affordable housing. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you say that. I mean, that's literally just a question, right? At the city, the city says, "Are you going to rent this thing out?" <laughs> is, no. that, is that all the more that's no. involved in that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, so so Portland is supposedly going to start cracking down on this, but they've been saying that for years. So we'll see. There's six thousand short-term rental units on Airbnb alone, and only one thousand legal permitted short-term rental permits out there. So one out of six are complying with the code currently. There you go. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. I got to tell you, I went uh, to your website, the tiny house, tinyhousehotel.com. Great website. This is very cool. I mean, just looking at these pictures makes me want to go there. That's the idea. And and stay in that place. (laughs) Uh, It's absolutely phenomenal looking. That is something I definitely want to plug for you. Thank you, Cole Peters from Be With Us. That's uh, buildingandadu.com. This has been another episode of Your Weekend Warriors. Right here on the Weekend Warriors Radio Network. Have a great week.